Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Ben Younger's new film, Bleed for This. The film stars Miles Teller as Vinny Paz, aka the Pasmanian Devil, a junior champion boxer forced to relinquish his title after breaking his neck in a serious car accident. Determined to regain his crown even after being told he may never walk again, he and his trainer defied medical orders to make a return to the sport he loved. In addition to Bleed for This, Mr. Younger's directorial credits include the feature films Boiler Room and Prime, the short films Toothpaste and The Car Thief and the Hitman, and an episode of the TV series Army Wives. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Younger discussed his process in making Bleed for This with director Todd Kip Williams. Listen on for highlights from their conversation, including Mr. Younger describing how he was able to complete 87 different setups on the first day of filming, finding his cinematographer after watching the infamous music video for Lil Jon's Turn Down for What, and how Martin Scorsese assisted in getting the film made after seeing Mr. Younger's film, Boiler Room. Pretty great, huh? Pretty awesome. It's really a knockout to me. Um, what I love most about this movie is how much it makes you feel, because I think sometimes we forget that we're in the emotion business. Um, but just jumping right into craft, since that's who we are, and trying to go in order, I, I think one of the most exciting things about this film is the performances. And so just talking about casting, because I look at all of these actors and think none of them would be the people I would think first could do these jobs. And so how you found um, almost totally new ways to look at the same, some of the same people we've been looking at doing different work. Uh, so Miles is not so interesting in the process because I really just thought he could do it. I saw him and I didn't think, I didn't, if it seemed prescient to you, I just saw it. Uh, I didn't, it didn't seem like a stretch. He's a physical kid, even, like three or when he came into the room, he forgets like right up close to you, like gets in your personal space. He sort of has a swagger straight away, even though you don't see it in Spectacular. Now, uh, Whiplash hadn't come out. We made this movie like two and a half years ago. So uh, so that was easy. The Like Kieran Hines, that's a more interesting one because he was like the eighth or ninth person I went to. He wasn't my first choice. He wasn't even on my radar, but everyone said, I'm, I can't do this role because... They thought it was bordering on caricature, and and I mean it was. Angelo Pazienza himself was bordering on caricature. He was like a stereotype of an Italian American from New England. So, uh, Kieran was as nervous as everyone else, but said he would take the jump. Can I ask you specifically how that name came forward? Because it would just never have occurred to me. Were you going through a list, or did I know Barton Schnee cast the movie? And they're terrific. Chai Vassarelli. Does anyone know that name? She's a DJ member. Uh, she is a documentary filmmaker. She made that great movie about Usandora, the Senegalese uh, West African singer. And then she made that great movie last year about the mountain climbing. 
uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It was like the greatest mountain climbing doc I've seen ever. Yeah, with her husband, with Jimmy Chin. Uh, yeah. Kerr. That was it. So she, yeah, I was having dinner with her. She said, what about Kieran Hines? But I mean, he was in, he was in uh, There Will Be Blood and he was in Game of Thrones. But you're right, he isn't someone you think of just, straight just, away. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly I, I would think he's an extremely capable actor, but I just yeah. wouldn't have thought that when you're talking about the kind of texture that you created in Providence, that that wouldn't necessarily be something he could find himself in. Everyone easily. said no, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's always, that can be an opportunity. The other two people that really jumped out, I mean, I loved, I thought Katie Seagal was another really stunning piece of casting that I probably wouldn't have seen. And uh, Ted Levine, I think, was... Looked fantastic. I love Ted from from Silence, but also mostly from uh, from Heat. He plays mm -hmm. Bosco and Heat, the guy with the big mustache, works for Pacino. Uh, I like character actors. I mean, Aaron's a character actor. I mean, he's a movie star, but he's a character actor. I mean, he would take that as a compliment. Um, and I don't know, everyone just like us. They just everyone just want all these actors just want jobs where they get to do something right. that no one's expect. Katie's been playing these really intense, dominant. But did you find that like uh, your casting directors were giving you ideas you didn't have before, or did you kind of were finding them from the universe and your own favorites from the past? For those bigger roles, it was more uh, me going through lists and people that I liked, and mm -hmm. then for all the secondary stuff, it was definitely Carrie and Carrie Barton and Paul Schnee, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know that among um, the that the project overall, I know you were. J you were jamming on budget, you were jamming on time, but the movie doesn't feel like that at all. And I think I want to talk about that in many different ways. But in specific, you know, the kinds of intense performances that you got of these actors, I can't, I don't know whether you had, how much time you had to work with them, how much rehearsal time you had with them, or time for them to prepare and get physical. I mean, there's some remarkable transformations from Miles. Mm -hmm. um, how did you do that with what you had? Because I know you didn't have what some people have. Well, I don't rehearse ever, so that made that part easy. Uh -huh. Everyone came in. Can I ask you what, talk about that? Yeah, I don't have like a. I don't have a anything that's gonna shock anyone. I, I do think that there's a spontaneity that you lose when you rehearse. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of actors would disagree. Um, I like to hire intelligent actors. I mean, not necessarily reflexive ones, like actual higher IQ types. So. Mm -hmm. I've had better better experience working with people who sort of understand the script on a, on a more writerly intellectual level, and then go and act from that place as opposed to like the Brandos of the world who would just come in and uh, and feel it. Mm -hmm. So uh, especially when I'm on a tight schedule like we have, we're only going to do four or five takes. There's no time, so I I have somebody who understands what I was trying to do when I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, I mean, what was, how many days? I know how many days. 24 days, $6 20, million. Dollars. Which is nuts. Um, you've got a lot of intense work for all these people, and that meant long days and lots of page count, I presume. How did you help them stay kind of in the, in the zone? I mean, did you, how, what, what kind of challenge did that present? Just keeping, helping them stay where they needed I to mean, be? There was no, nobody had trailers. So we shoot that all the stuff in the house. The the bedrooms in that house were the dressing rooms. So Miles had one and Katie had one, and I think three people share another one. And we moved so fast. I think actors are used to going back to a trailer and then getting called through. There was they. Were, I remember seeing shock on their face in the first week when they were like, "Oh no, we're ready for you again." Right. So I think the the answer is just don't let them 
settle ever. I think I, I do think that, and I think that probably actors, if there's one thing that we all know they hate is time in their trailer. I mean, yeah. it's just that's like it's a murder to them. So that's the thing that makes them feel most upset. It seems. Yeah. So I think that they do see that as a gift. But um, to get through something like that, did you? Are you that guy, or is, is your AD that guy, or how, how do you how do you keep it going? I think the 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 bond company is that guy. Right. But somebody, I mean, nevertheless, people blow their days no matter <laughs> right. if they have a bond or not. Yeah, we, we were told in the first week that if we didn't make that week, they wouldn't bond the movie. So they actually, we worked for a week without being bonded because they didn't think that our schedule was makeable. And so we worked out a deal with the financier where they give us one week. And if we made our days, like the first day we had 87 setups. Um, I've never done that in my life. And I by the way, that, yeah, really also get... your shooting style is not... Um, you know, plant the camera and walk away. You've got, you, you really go for detail. Um, that's a lot of, I mean, how, I'm just interested in how do you get that 87 You setup. get a guy who's just done music videos, who's never done a feature, and is just approaching it from that perspective. And Larkin is amazingly fast DP, who's also very good. Um, also, he's like a 360 lighter, which is great. Um, a lot of wall spreaders and sort of he lights a room and then when we turn the camera on for some reason he needs 15 minutes to tweak how did you find him uh, he, he hates that i tell the story but that's a i don't know if i have who saw that video for turn down for what the little john video where one of the daniels is falling through the ceiling no it's this <laughs> weird hip-hop video i think it's like one of the greatest videos i've ever seen and uh but he hates that that's why that's, uh, he, he thinks less of me as an artist because I like that video. Well, the film, I mean, I mean, I, it's just staggering to me that you shot the kind of, that it looks so, um, I've shot on a shitty budget and a shitty schedule, and I'm usually just saying, give me what I can get. Let me get through this. Imperfection is going to have to be my friend. But I don't see any casualness in the shot selection. It feels like you really, I think it, you could talk to, Day one. I mean, how, how did you? Is it how shot listed are you? How specific are you? Are you are you opportunistic with even? Let's talk about the opening of the movie, like specifically the waiting scene. So many details. So many people sitting there. I mean, how did you say approach that day? That was the first day, and that was the eighty-seven shot day. That was uh, the the most setups of the the whole shoot was that first day, and it looked exactly that you. It appears that this is exactly what you planned to get. Yeah, it's in the script. Um, but the de some of the details we didn't know until Melissa Vargas sent out these people in costume. And then we noticed, like, uh, Mayweather's manager, that ring he had. But Larkin was great with just, like, I mean, we treated it like a tabletop commercial almost. I mean, he was just, we were just flying, just kept moving the camera, kept moving people in, socks, hands. All I knew was I wanted all of these sort of very deliberate shots to sort of get people slowly... I mean, the thing I was up against from the beginning was I don't want to make a cliched boxing movie. I, that, and I didn't even know at the time I was going to be coming out in a year where there would be three other boxing movies, which I, I never would have done this movie if I did. <laughs> um, I'm not even kidding. Um, and, uh, and so I thought that was a good way in, was to, to be really slow, really deliberate, and tell a story of this world through these pictures. I was really trying to think about how you where the economy was, because it doesn't look and feel that there was economy. And my guess was that you 
that there are actually not an, an endless number of sequences. There are sequences that you really get everything out of, like tip to tail, even this opening sequence. You, you're not blowing through that and then doing four more scenes. You're getting five beats out of that one waiting sequence. Do you know what I mean? And I see that in over the film that there's kind of bigger chunks, in a way, scene chunks. I mean, they're broken yeah. down, but that's the only place I could see any that I thought was a very smart use of time, which was I'm not going to shoot short shrift this scene. I'm going to go for it, but there's not going to be an endless number of them. I think I think a scene like that, which is highly visual, it's two it's two components. It's knowing exactly what you want, and I and I embedded myself in Cranston for like six months prior, so I knew no, that's not going to work. That will play. So there's not a lot of wasted movements. And then the other part is Larkin's speed. I think it's those two combinations. Right. When we're shooting dialogue, for sure I can tell you it's one thing. I shoot four takes, then we move on. Right. We don't shoot ever more than five takes. That's and, how you shoot eight pages a day. And Jeff Hansen was your AD. Yeah. And um, he's done some pretty huge movies. Yeah, but he was um, happy to, to rock and roll on this. And, and, and so, you know, I find that on any movie there's a handful of the, the three or two core players. They can come from different places. You never know quite who they're going to be. Who, who, do you feel that way too? And who were those people? About Jeff? About the AD department? Or you mean just, just in general? Just the day, getting through those days. Who, was your, who were your, you know, yeah, your I main like part? Do you feel like those change for you movie to movie? I do. Uh, I don't. It's always the AD and the DP. Okay. And then Crafty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, I mean, it sounds like... Um, uh, Larkin was fast, but did the Jeff and Larkin must have been moving sort of insane. They had a great then. rapport. Uh, you know what was, what was the change for me on this one? I think, and because it's been so long, was not hiring people that I necessarily would want to go drinking with or pal around with. Like seeing past the interpersonal play and more about what they actually could do and what they were qualified to do and so even though I wouldn't mean, when they wouldn't get all my jokes or I wouldn't get theirs I was like I have to move past I have to look past that right. that was definitely new for me so it wasn't like a club of like you know make obscure reference the uh, Jewish left-leaning intellectuals you know helping me create my vision it was people who knew how to can make movies which is probably a better approach and I'm, I'm I'm almost certain that I know the answer to this but Prime was shot on film and this yeah. wasn't. So this, this the is the first time. time you've worked with digital. Yeah. And that's a revolution. Fast. For, I mean, Ben and I have tr sort of have similar spaces and similar stops and starts. And I, I mean, that, so that must have been... It was how great. Did that change Larkin, I mean, I, I hear people complain about it, and I love that Tarantino's doing what he's doing, but I don't see why I would ever shoot film again, uh, considering how the movie came out. And that's no quality design of mine that's Larkin he came right. up with this LUT and uh, and then Andrew Francis colored it and I just I mean, you look at the final product it kind of well, to me it looks like film I don't have as good an eye as probably some other people I, I think it looks exceedingly like film and I've been frustrated my own attempts dealing with digital so I mean I'm very impressed with that um, I'm going to ask one more question quickly which is going back to what you just said part of our job I mean I think we have many jobs which we don't have to talk about, which is getting movies made and making movies. But another part of the job is what you were talking about just before, which is hiring people. I mean, you could hire somebody with a big fat resume. Didn't sound like in Larkin's case you did. You can hire people that you can make jokes with. You didn't do that either. So what have you learned about hiring? 
Uh, I hire people who are in the same state as me, which is like a low-level state of terror. Uh, Melissa Vargas had never made designed a movie. Kay Lee, the production designer, had only done a couple of small, low budgets. Larkin never made a movie. Aaron was terrified about pulling off Rooney. Kieran was terrified about pulling off. Miles was too. He, he's he's got a little more confidence. He hit it, but in hindsight, or retroactively, tells me that he did. So basically, everyone was working above their station. Julia Holter, the, the composer, has never scored anything. Forget a feature. She's never scored a short film. Well, it's an interesting feeling of the people that you've gathered other than, I mean, these actors, yes, maybe they were scared, but you're talking about a composer who's never composed a movie before. And I don't know if Larkin shot film before, but you hired him off a of video, so that's unique. Yeah, he never shot a movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like you give people a job that's just above their station, not too much where the fear becomes paralyzing. They just work harder. I know I did. I was, I didn't have the luxury of screwing up. I, it was tw it's 12 years since I made a movie. This had to work. I didn't have a choice. Right. So, well, and you know, before I turn it over to you guys, I think that uh, my favorite, and Ben knows this, is the, is the end, this line that I was convinced was a real thing about uh, the lie of it not being simple. He, walked, was, in, he walked into the editing room and, he, and I showed him it. the last scene of the movie because that last scene of the movie is not supposed to be the last scene. It, it was supposed to go before the Duran fight and it's not that simple. And you know, the last scene you just saw. And so then Kip, I said, what do you think? Should I put it at the end? And he goes, yeah, it's good. Which interview did you get that from? And I said, I wrote that. And he said, fuck you. And yeah. he got up and walked out of the room. So I knew I knew I'd done a good it, job. It, it was, but I think that there's, and, and do you, I said I wasn't going to ask you more questions, but do you, in that, in that writing of that line, and in your 10 years you said to, since Prime, and getting this movie made, and I think in the movie itself, a clarity, like a real clarity of purpose, what is does that line mean anything to you? This idea of keeping it simple. Personally, I mean, does yeah. that translate to you? It does. I mean, I know it's reductive, but and I mean, a couple of reviews even took a shot at me for that. But it is what Vinny believed, and whether it's naive or not, it worked. Right. But I'm talking about you. Right. So and so for me, it feels the same way. Yeah. Like maybe. Yeah. If you just yes, if I just do this thing that everyone's telling me I can't then it's just done. Because for me, I am always leaning toward discussion and, and, and sort of the verbal and the Talmudic reasoning and all the ways I was grown up and taught to, to behave and, and analyze. And I realize that if I just keep my mouth shut and just write or direct or whatever the thing is, it's just better off if I'm not talking about it, if I'm mm -hmm. doing it. All right. Anyway, uh, would you? No, no, I'm not a boxing fan. I can tell you guys I'm still not a boxing fan. Uh, I just like the comeback element. I don't know anyone who would, who would risk paralysis for their job or a passion. Any, any, if it wasn't a child, I don't understand how anybody would risk that. He already won two titles. He could have hung it up. Nobody would have said a word. So it had nothing to do with the boxing. Oh, Angela Pizzo. Yeah. He wrote Rudy. He has a story by credit on this. Uh, I've never met the man... But he, yeah, yeah. The relationship is that he wrote the first ever version of there was a there were like six versions, six scripts before mine, 
And he wrote the first one, and the WGA requires that if you're the first writer on a project, the, l the least credit you can get is a story by. So I actually never met him, and I only read his script when we went to arbitration, and he didn't even focus on the car crash. His script was about Vinny as a junior Olympian living with Mike Tyson. Yeah, so like I said, Angelo, Angelo had nothing to do with anything. He had, we, we, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. So I'm saying Angelo was in it before I ever, he got gifted that credit. It doesn't, I'm glad the Writers Guild sticks up for people. I guess that in a lot of cases it helps them, but in this case that's, it's totally unwarranted. Um, but, but he got it, great. Uh, so when I came on, that was just, he was stuck onto it just by virtue of the Writers Guild thing. Uh, a guy named Chad Verdi told me Vinny's story over lunch. Uh, we, I love the idea of the comeback, but he wanted to make the blind side. That's what he told me. I want to make the blind side of boxing movies. I said, I'm, you got the wrong guy. Uh, I made Boiler Room. I'm not the blind side guy. So he's like, well, what do you want to? What movie do you want to tell? do you want to make? And I said, well, you told me the story. You know the scene where Vinny's on The Tonight Show? I and mean, that was real, obviously real footage with Jay Leno. There was a, sh when they aired that, they cut to Lee Anderson, who was a penthouse pet. She was the penthouse of the century. And she was Vinny's girlfriend. And this, for some reason, she decided to wear a t-shirt that said Property of Paz, which is ridiculous and hilarious. And I thought, that's the movie I want to make. Uh, and Chad was like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to do anything like that. So we parted ways for two weeks. He called me two weeks later. I guess he couldn't find anyone else and said, go ahead. Then uh, I guess you want to know about Marty. So what happened was I wrote the script. Then, oh, I know what it was. Marty was putting together, like he always does, he does like a mini film festival every time he makes a movie for reference material for his crew. And Boiler Room was one of his main reference pieces of reference material for Wolf of Wall Street. He called me into his office. We had a nice meeting. He told me he was a fan of my movie and asked me what I was working on. I told him about this. He read it and two weeks later called me and said, uh, I'm going to help you make the movie. And that made a big difference, right? I mean, that was a big difference maker. Yeah, huge difference because then we put him in the room with the financier. Uh, it's, I'd sat in the room with the financier and he didn't do anything. And then Marty sat in the room with the financier and he wrote a check for $4.8 million. So. And and uh, and CAA started getting actors to read it and focus on it as well. I think, right, or not so much. Yeah, once Marty got on, it's true. It just like it lends this right. huge sort of sense of credibility and yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, that is interesting. The one you write, the one you shoot, the one you edit, and the one you sell. Yeah, the, I'd say the biggest change for me was the one that we edited. So writing and shooting were similar, and then the editor room, I realized I made a huge mistake. I put the crash to midpoint, which is probably the biggest cup of my 17-year writing career. I thought that I could reinvent the wheel and put the crash to midpoint, but it doesn't work like that. So I had a, I had this all these other great storylines of Vinny gambling and his parents trying to sell out the Civic Center because they took the they were the ones that took it on themselves to have it. It was supposed to be in an ice rink in New Jersey that fight, the delay fight. And all that stuff was great, and then people got to the midpoint, the crash happened, and, and then the audiences who I showed it to were like, wait, this is the movie? He breaks his neck? He waited an hour to show us this? So even though they loved watching that first half, as soon as they realized what the movie was, they hated the first half retroactively. It was a really weird, interesting 
So we had to cut mercilessly. We cut the first half down so that I could get that crash as close to a first act break as I could. Uh, as far as the movie we sold, I mean, look, the movie took a huge shit and died this weekend. I don't know what to say to you. I mean, this is, I'm glad I'm here with family for the last uh, screening I'll do, but we've been all around the world. Every film festival, every audience goes crazy. We got great reviews and, and the movie just died this weekend. So uh, I, I don't know what movie I sold. I sold the best movie I knew how and then the people that bought it just had some bad luck. Yeah, Vinny, well, Vinny's parents are gone. Vinny and his sister don't really talk. She's a piece of work. I went to meet her, I never told you this. When I went to meet her early days in Cranston, I asked her who else I could talk to. Uh, she's like, my parents are gone. I said, I know that. I said, where's John, the guy who loves elephants? She said, oh, he's dead. That was her husband. She said it like that. And I said, oh, I'm really, I'm really sorry. And she goes, no, I fucking hated him. We were, have, we were having the worst marriage. It was, it was, the divorce was imminent, and just he saved me all these divorce fees because it was going to be this long, protracted thing. And he had a heart attack and died. It was like the greatest thing that ever happened. Like, that's, who, that's who this family is. So I don't know what she thinks of the movie. Vinny's the most important one. He sat with me and watched it and, uh, and cried straight through the movie. He, uh, and not the moments you'd think. He actually was holding my hand. He, uh, he didn't cry at the crash or the the big winds because he could watch all that stuff on YouTube. He cried like when his dad was washing him in the tub because that happened. Or when his mom was at the... He, he just couldn't believe that we created these familial, small, tender moments to that specificity and it, it totally affected him, which was, uh, it was great for me to see that we had gotten close. Did I have a like a little mini stroke. Didn't he, when they were in the tub, didn't he used to say it wasn't supposed to go like this? And he doesn't anymore, right? Yeah. He doesn't anymore? He doesn't say it now, right? But we did record that. There were a lot of moments like that where like people said the thing they were thinking and I'm just trying to be less verbose. Yeah. Like when the mom walks out and looks at it, she, the daughter at one point says, Doreen says something like, Ma, and she says, no, I'm staying. But like if she stands there, you know she's staying. Right. You don't have to say that. So. Yeah. It, it was closer than most boxer training relationships. I did take some liberties, but but not as much as you'd think. He did live in the gym. The dad set up a bedroom for him in the gym. Um, he didn't stick around when Vinny started. He had a family. He had two kids. Um, and uh, he went back to the Catskills and then came back and helped started training Vinny. So the way I sort of suggest it in the film is that he's kind of never goes home. So that was definitely a liberty. It's funny, no one's asked me that. But I actually was thinking, I was thinking the same thing. But to, to your point, one thing I did want to talk about is the boxing scenes themselves. One, I don't understand how you got all those people in, for the money you had in the crowd. But two, free. two, okay. But how did the, some of this boxing, as a fan of boxing, is some of the best boxing I've ever seen. And if you didn't have the time to get Miles trained, and I don't know who was in, you know who was in the ring with him necessarily, but the texture of it and the way you shot it—I mean, it, it really is some of the finest boxing I've ever seen on film. Thanks. Uh, I box. That's nice of you to say. Uh, we had one day to shoot each of the fights, so it was. How the f did you do it? Uh, this guy Daryl Foster—he trained Sugar Ray. His whole shtick is contact. So you cheat in the sense that the camera isn't necessarily always 
showing you the hit, but what you make up for is that there's contact. So if the camera's just behind Miles, he'd have his gloves like this and as close to his face, and the boxer would hit those gloves. So there was never a moment in the movie where someone throws a punch here and he has to time it and move his head. I think that's what made the biggest difference. Because I think you, even if you're not an aficionado, I think you can smell that bullshit when it's off by like even like a fraction of a second. Yeah, there was none of the usual haymakers, and I mean, there's that too. Yeah, Oscar De La Hoya wrote a piece for ESPN this week saying it was the most realistic boxing movie ever made. I mean, I I, I just couldn't believe it. Like again, you know, I was I was in preparation for this, look, listening to like Alejandro Inarritu with the months and months of preparation on the last movie with these guys, and I was like, but. What the f we never get that. We never get that. Right. So how the f do you make these guys look like they can box? I mean, no yeah. rehearsal. It's yeah, I think it's that contact and uh, and not being not having the time to get fancy. So like Creed has that one fight where there's one shot and they're circling the. And I had idea. I mean, I had big ideas. Uh, I, I'm a drone operator. I thought it would be cool to have the drone in the ring, uh, above the ring. Then the insurance company was like, "That's it. Doesn't matter what your budget. That's never going to happen." In a million years, but uh, but sometimes that that tightening of the noose really does sort of make you discriminate in a really important way, and and you do get to the essence of what's important a lot faster. Did you stage extended sequences of boxing and film them in the round, or did you? It was a pieces and pieces and pieces. So Mayweather was very planned out, and if you notice, the camera's never in the ring during Mayweather. It's always outside. It was distant. Vinny's taking this beating. He's not prepared. By the time we got to Duran, we had some ideas, but uh, you probably heard this story, but that guy I was telling you about, Daryl Foster, Duran's guy, uh, Sugar Ray's trainer. This is a tough dude, 65, 60-year-old black guy who fought for years, kill anyone half his age. He got knocked out in the first two hours of the day by Edwin Ramirez, who's playing Duran, because Edwin got, didn't memorize the numbers right. So like one's a jab, two's an uppercut, and he just come off a pro fight, which he swore to me he wasn't going to take. So he shows up a week late to set, he's got a black eye, and he's just like, what are the numbers? All right, I got it, I got it. And then me and Miles are talking, I just hear a thud, I turn around, Daryl's laid out. And that was like two hours into the, into the day. So Daryl got up and said, well, this is over, we're not shooting here. And I was like, we got 4,000 people in the Civic Center, and it's the last day of the shoot. We got finished, so it was like one punch and cut, one punch and cut. So. And and Daryl, just that's the way Daryl agreed to go forward, or he took off. No, he stayed. He okay. agreed to go forward that way. <laughs> Any, anybody else over here? She never watched a single one of his fights. Yeah. If if he won, she would watch it on tape. That that was her her thing. Yeah, afterwards. Thank you. You were feeling a little burned this weekend, but I do think that anybody who sees this movie seems to have. The, I mean, I it 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 plays, man, it plays. So, well, with women is one of the problems we had is that no women wanted, women just don't want to go see the movie. I mean, there's fatigue around the genre. I get it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're the best of four boxing movies. You're just the fourth boxing movie at some point. You're just like, I don't want, I don't want to see a boxing movie now myself. Uh, I. Liev is in one coming out next year called Bleeder. Uh, I mean, I'll do my best, but <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of boxing. A lot of blood. All right. Oh, one more. 
I, that means something. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I watch this movie, and I think Ben can fucking direct anything. I mean, anything. He comes uh, 10 years off, and he comes back and does this. It's like Vinny Pezienza. It's crazy to me. So... Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.